got quiet. <laughs> this evening it's going to, we're going to be in 2 Samuel 15. And last time we looked at Absalom, King David's, one of his many sons. He uh, comes back from exile uh, with a really not a great attitude, no repentance, no humility. And tonight we're going to look more, see more about the entitled prince, handsome, charismatic, affects a coup on his father, the king, which causes the king, David, self-banishment. And we'll read about why he does that. Interwoven through this, I, we can see really seven marks of a false leader based on Absalom's character. And the corollary, or the counter to that, is good leadership, the seven marks of good leadership. We're going to start out with the bad leadership because really Absalom is the main character in this chapter where even though King David has you know, been going and had been God and God's anointed, he seems to almost, almost to be auxiliary, auxiliary, auxiliary or ancillary to uh, David in this particular section. We're going to look at the usual personal and societal applications. However, we're also going to make some really good applications for leadership today. You know, as I look out at the amount of people who are here on a Wednesday night, even by Calvary Chapel standards, it's, you know, usually 10, 15%, sometimes less. I think we're about 25 to 30%. Many of you have leadership abilities. Many of you have expressed ability to be in leadership and want more than just a Sunday morning service. So this really is going to, I'm going to put the mirror back on you to see as you go through this, what type of person does God call to be a leader and what to look for in leaders. So it's going to be a, a double blessing there. Okay, we're going to start with verse 1. After this, it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Here we see the beginning of Absalom's self-promotion and self-aggrandizement. Instead of seeking to do things the Lord's way, he's going to do it his way. He's going to self-promote. Uh, the accoutrements that comes with being a, a popular prince, he's going to make sure there's a lot of fanfare that goes before him. And pretty much anybody can be a self-made leader. And there's unfortunately always fools to, to support and follow them. So the first point is that the first mark of a false leadership is self-established by itself. We look at some of the false prophets, C.T. Russell, Joseph Smith, who made many prophecies that never came to pass. That's why they're called false prophets. However, sometimes are today that their followers can be upwards of the millions. Now, the, the proper leader or a true leader is anointed by God. At least he earned or she earned his position. Okay? So the second verse. Now, Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. So it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision, that Absalom would call to him and say, What city are you from? And he would say, Your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your case is good and right, but there is no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me, then I would give him justice. And so it was, whenever anyone came near him, to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. This is devious. You know, he says in a paraphrase, you know, my dad's the king and he's just such a busy man. He really can't give attention to the things that need attention. You have a legitimate issue, but 
you know, my dad's not going to hear it, but I, gee, if I was in this position, oh, I would certainly look and, and put care into that decision. Now, we know people who do that today. They undermine. It's a way of undermining. You know, you're, you're not going to get the attention that you need, but I'm, I'm here. Let me insert myself into the situation. Look to me. This is what he's doing. It was parasitic. Absalom didn't have a kingdom. He wasn't even anointed. Uh, maybe partially in God's foreknowledge because he knew a type of man that Absalom would be. The next one to be anointed was going to be Solomon, not Absalom. And this is his father. Hence the expression people would do for the right price, they'll sell out their own grandmother, right? So this is what he's doing to his own father. And it starts with subtle, soothing words, and it's really gossip. Some people believe that they can gossip their way all the way to the top. Actually, it's a brilliant strategy, but it's an evil strategy. What happens is if you talk enough and you, you manipulate and you use this deceit, you can get a bunch of people looking suspiciously at each other while you become the hero because they look to you for the 411, for the information. So this is the tactic that he's using. And I think a good maxim for us is to repel those who are secretive and, and deceitful and instead be attracted to those who keep things into the light. I remember my pastor would often say from the pulpit, if, some, if, you're not, if you're concerned whether it's gossip or not, you ask the person who's giving information, can I quote you? Oh, no, no, this is just between us. Well, you pretty much know what you're dealing with. He also had a critical spirit. People with a critical spirit are always tearing down. They're always putting others down to make themselves look better. They're always sitting at the sidelines pointing and saying, well, I could do that better, and I could do that better. And really, it's a, a lack of confidence of their own. Again, the more you tear down others and you stand up head and shoulders, if you have to tear them down to do it, obviously, it's not the right way to do it. Look at me. So the second thing we see is that the false leader tears down legitimate leadership to get to the top. It's subtle, it's secret, and it's flattery. Okay, Absalom used a lot of flattery. What is flattery? Well, this is my definition. My definition of flattery is dressed up lies to make them look pretty. You know, you put the little umbrella in it, you put the little whipped cream on top, and you dress up the lie. You're just lying to somebody when you're flattering. You don't really mean it, but you're, you're trying to get something out of them. It says that Absalom stole the hearts of the people. Sometimes it doesn't take much. Remember, Absalom is young, he's charismatic. The Bible says he's good-looking. And Dad, the king, well, he's getting older. And, and probably we can almost point to David's years, maybe in his 50s. And back then, if you were a king and you were in your 50s, you were, no, no offense to anybody, but back then you, you were getting older for a king. So, hey, naturally people started to gravitate towards Absalom. Now, I did a little... I did some research into, you know, different leaders and such, and in, in, in history, we know that in, in the Roman Empire, Emperor Caligula, one of the most heinous, debauched, and horrific leaders that ever lived. Here's a guy who was young, he was untested, he was given too much too soon, and it was a dismal failure. You look at Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler, they both were uh, failures in life, but they were given too much too soon. They capitalized on a situation in both of their countries. And if you count the revolutions in Russia, both men were responsible for the deaths of close to 100 million dead, just by two men. 
So it's an important thing that we need to look at. A person must be tested before they're put in leadership. There's a biblical concept called if you're faithful in little things, then you move up to be faithful in bigger things. And eventually you're at the position where God feels that you're, you're adequately, you can handle it because you've been tested. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, again, flip back and forth between secular leadership and ecclesiastical leadership. So Absalom had the entitlement mentality as well. He felt he deserved it. Remember how antsy he was getting in the former chapters. You know, he didn't want to be confined to his, his, his palace. He wanted to be out there. He wanted to be in the limelight. And unfortunately, this entitlement mentality is also taking over our culture. We see it in celebrities, especially, you know, it's really said some of these teenage celebrities and they get into their 20s and their, their life is a mess because they were never grown right. They were never grown properly. They were given too much too soon. Politicians, ministries, and, and you can look at a few things here. Looks, charisma, pure selfishness, add a pinch of narcissism to that. And sadly, Christians are duped by this type of behavior as well. 1 Samuel 16:7, one of my favorite scriptures. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, but man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God sees right through us to our hearts. He sees what we're made of. We can put makeup on, we can whiten our teeth, we can go to the gym, we can have our hair styled and dyed and all this kind of stuff. But it doesn't make us anything. God sees right through the outward exterior and he sees the heart, what we're made of. Character matters. And unfortunately in our society, character is mattering less and less. Let that not be so in the church. I was... Uh, my wife and I watched this show. I don't really like the name of the title, so I'm not going to repeat it, but it's all about the human brain. And they had this experiment, and they took two guys. They wore the exact same clothing. One guy was tall, muscular, chiseled, you know, handsome, and the other guy was not. <laughs> and they put them together. And both of the men said, one after the other, in a monotone voice, you can trust me. They found that on first glance, over 70% of those that participated in the test picked the guy with the looks. 70%. You would think it would f fall like a 50-50. But there's something to that. There's something about appearance that our carnal and fleshly nature is attracted to. At the East Coast Pastors Conference, I forget which speaker it was, but I, don't, I won't forget what he said. He said, pastors, don't make your church a cult of personality. It isn't about you. Lead them to the Lord Jesus. Don't lead them towards yourself. Really good advice. Now, if we can look at this and, and even make matters worse. It does appear, if you look at some of the Psalms, and Pastor Paul and I will talk about this afterwards, uh, some of David's Psalms almost appear in this period of time that he was ill and he was struggling with some health issues. And possibly we can use conjecture that he wasn't able to administer or uh, it, uh, use administration in the kingdom as well as he could normally because he had to take care of his own health issues. But what does Absalom do? He seizes the moment. He takes advantage of his own father in a weakened state, like sharks to blood in the water. And my question is, when, when our leaders are sick and they're going through struggles, are we quick to dump our leaders in times of weakness? Or do we, want, do we show them the same grace that we want uh, from them, that we ask for? 
I have this expression that's called grace down is great, but there needs to be grace up as well, and for lack of a better term. And that's really the corollary to our second point, or the counter. We want our bosses, our professors, uh, the police officer who stops us, we want to be shown grace. However, do we also look at leaders and as soon as they do something wrong, you know, we're on top of them? Or do we show grace up as well? It's a good concept to understand. So the third point is that the false leader, after tearing down legitimate leaders in the hearts of the people, they now take that place in, in the people's hearts. And this is what Absalom did. All right, he tore down David's, his, his own father, his reputation, and he jumped into the hearts of the people, figuratively, of course, uh, to, to become that leader that he always wanted to be. Now, the corollary or the counter to that is that uh, a true leader will become a leader in God's timing. He'll at least earn it, or she, he or she. At this point, we need to ask ourselves again to be able to put ourselves in another person's shoes. Some of us are CEOs. Some of us are managers, bosses. Some of us are pastors. Some of us are teachers. Some of us are authority figures. And some of us are subordinate to those positions. And we have to really try to walk in the other person's shoes. So your boss, your teacher, your professor, do we try to see things from their perspective or are we just critical of them? By the same token, as leaders, let's not forget where we came from, right? Let's not forget that we were once subordinates as well. And that's really hard to do when you've been handed everything from the beginning. That's why there's a character issue in our country. People just want without earning, without being tested. I'll tell you, as a pastor, I served prior as an usher in the children's ministry, so I'm very generous and gracious and attentive to the needs of the subordinate ministries in the church because I was there. I'm not an untouchable celebrity. And I don't mind sharing my pulpit with other pastors, as you guys have seen over the last few years. Verse 7. And it came to pass after 40 years that Absalom said to the king, Please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I vowed to the Lord. For your servant vowed a vow while I was down at Geshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. So Absalom is, uh, you know, he's continuing his plot in Hebron. And worse than that, so his father doesn't get suspicious, he says he's doing something for God. And that's one of the worst kinds of sins when we cover evil by dragging God into the, into the conversation. Right? And, you know, that, that's, that's a rough thing to do. So the fourth point here, false leadership style is characterized by lies, and there's no end to what people will fabricate. There's an expression, a lie will travel halfway around the world while the truth is still tying its shoes. Get it? You guys awake tonight? <laughs> a lie will travel halfway around the world while the truth is still tying its shoes. The counter that, to that is that a good leader will be guided by truth and surround themselves with truthful associates and accomplices. Now this is, I got about 90% of the message done and I was blessed as I'm going through this kind of confirmation of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I was tipped off to Alistair Begg. Uh, he's, he's got a great ministry. And it was such a, so much information that it was a two-part series. 
It was called How, How to Ruin a Church's Effectiveness. If you want to check that out as part A and part B. But untruths were one of the biggest things that he said. Lies, gossip, you know, falsehoods that are spread in the church are one of the greatest ways, if you're trying to take a church down, do that. And there was a few things at the top of the list, but that was one of them. So a good leader is guided by the truth, not by white lies, not by you know, playing fast and loose with the truth, telling the truth. Now we can also take note of, of two more interesting things here, that the word 40, actually a uh, few translations have four in that, uh, whether it's 40 years from David's anointing or four years uh, from Amnon, or excuse me, Amnon's dead. Absalom waiting to overthrow his father. In addition to that, he waited two years to kill his brother. A year is a long period of time to hold bitterness, isn't it? So remember, Absalom waits two years to kill Amnon. He also waits four years to overthrow his father. Some people are so resentful and they hold this bitterness. And if you've ever done a physiological study on anger and rage and bitterness and all those negative emotions, what they do is they start releasing these catabolic hormones into the bloodstream. It affects your, your blood sugars. It affects your uh, muscle wasting. It affects the uh, different delicate uh, side organs in the brain, the limbic system. You, you just do a study on what these harmful catabolic hormones to do. Remember, they're, they're fight-or-flight hormones. Adrenaline is one of them. And basically, they're designed to... I'm really going off the topic here. But they're designed to save us in times of danger. When we harbor these things, it literally eats us from the inside out. They say stress is a killer. It's true. It affects our blood vessels, our heart. It affects every organ in the body. So keep that in mind. Harboring bitterness is a ticking time bomb. And I'll tell you what, there's nobody who harbors bitterness belongs ever in ministry unless they change that. That to me is a major red flag, not getting past stuff. Just keep reiterating it over and over again. Verse 10. Then Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited, and they went along innocently and did not know anything. Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gileonite, David's counselor from his city, namely from Gilo, where he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy grew strong, for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. So Absalom's a sneaky guy. The deception's grown. Even these 200 guys that had no idea what was going on, Absalom set it up so it made it look like they were on his side. I mean, there's just no, no end to this guy's craftiness. He's, he's siphoning more from the monarchy. David, maybe he has no idea. Maybe he does, but he suppresses it because it's his son. Maybe he feels, you know, going back a few chapters, maybe he feels this is part of the prophecy of the sword. And he's just going to let it take its place instead of trying to stop it. We don't know what's going on in David's mind during this whole thing. So the fifth point, two words that I want to focus on, conspiracy and spies. The false leader uses underhanded ways of undermining and overthrowing leadership so they can take that place. It's never out in the open. It's never in the light. Some will even say God is in it, like Absalom. But God's nowhere a part of this. God is not in it. The counter to this is the true leader is genuine. He or she is at peace with how they got there. 
maybe their promotion, maybe their uh, you know, leadership office. And they're not, they're not led or governed by paranoia. I'll tell you what, those that are that governed by paranoia are always looking over their shoulders. They can never relax as a leader because they know what they did to get the leadership position in the first place. So they, they wonder if somebody else is, is waiting to stab them in the back. So they can never really relax. They're governed by fear and paranoia. You know, look at some of our uh, elected official, officials over the years and their behaviors. And, and you almost hear the paranoia in the way they talk. These people are always out to get me. Right? Verse 13. And a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, We are your servants, ready to do whatever the Lord the king commands. Then the king went out with all his household after him. But the king left ten women concubines to keep the house. And the king went out with all the people after him and stopped at the outskirts. Then all his servants passed before him, and all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites and, the, and all the Gittites, 600 men who had followed him from Gath, passed before the king. David was a man of war, but we start to see his tender side here. He's a battle-hardened leader. He could have stood his ground, laid a trap, laid a snare, especially with Joab, who was a great general. He probably could have taken Absalom. Remember, this is his son. And we'll talk about how he thought of the people. He was concerned about a bloodbath. He didn't want anyone to needlessly perish. Maybe he thought it would blow over. And he left the ladies, uh, the concubines and some other servants in, behind just to take care of things and hopefully the thing will blow over and we'll work something out. But as we'll find out in the next chapter, it gets worse. But David says, basically, we're going to leave lest he strike the city with a sword. Okay, so the sixth point, false leadership style often evokes a bloodbath. And the only reason why this didn't turn into one, because by leaving, David averted a bloodbath. False leaders can only see his or her own goals and own glory. People are collateral damage. And they often put true leaders in impossible situations. So here's the dilemma that David's in. Remember, now put yourself in his shoes as a leader, as a king. If he stays... Many, listen, when there's wars back then and, and there's a busy city, innocent people get killed. So if David stays, people are going to lose their lives. If David flees, which he chooses, the lesser of the two evil, he leaves a bad leader over the people. A true leader is going to be more concerned and his, his or her decisions are going to be governed by those that are under them. The plight uh, that, that they're over. The true leader seeks to heal and bring peace. Future leaders, pay attention to this. There's a lot of good stuff in this scripture. And I'm, I'm even talking, listen, you could be a pastor or you could lead something on the mission field or maybe just a promotion in your job. I think all this stuff is relevant to every one of our lives. And then even those that you're serving under, you know, maybe uh, flags will go off as you're, you're going through this. You might even think of a situation that comes to mind. I'll give you an example too about a pastor, and I've seen this in, in different churches and stuff, and, and even here. So let's say there's something that comes into the church that a pastor is, is keyed in by the Holy Spirit. This is dangerous. This is a problem. Right? It's becoming 
something that you really need to pay attention to. If the pastor waits too long and says, you know what, I'm going to give it to prayer, I'm going to give it to the Lord, maybe the Lord's saying you need to do something about it. If he waits too long, there could be a church split. It only takes one person to cause division in a church. You know, if you have four or five, well, boy, it's a party at that point. But so if you wait too long, there could be serious implications to the body. If you move too quickly, some may say that you're not showing grace and that you're led by your your, your um, fleshly emotions instead of waiting on God. So you see that false leaders will put true leaders in impossible situations. It happens every day, and they don't care. It kind of reminds me, too, of my other hat in policing, where you know, you're chasing somebody who committed a felony, and if they decide, and, and this, is, this is all law, this is New Jersey law, the good guy who's chasing the bad guy has to be responsible for the, the innocent bystanders. So if the bad guy runs up a curve and purposely runs somebody over, the police have to stop and render first aid and then continue the chase if they can continue. Yeah, you're responsible for everything. You know, big lawsuits that happen. You know, bad guy, you're chasing the bad guy, runs somebody over, who do they sue? Not the bad guy, he doesn't have any money, he's in and out of prison. They sue the police officer in the township. And unfortunately, this evil also plays out in many situations. The good guy is concerned for people, the bad guy doesn't care. And it almost seems, from our perspective, that they win a lot. Thank God there's a reckoning at the end of our lives. It is appointed for man to die once, and then the judgment. Judgment for the righteous, and judgment for the wicked, and nothing will escape God's attention. So where was I? I got carried away in police chases. Okay. (laughs) Verse 19. And the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why are you also going with us? Return and remain with the king. For you are a foreigner and also an exile from your own place. In fact, you came only yesterday. Should I make you wander up and down with us today? Since I go, I I know not where. Return and take your brethren back. Mercy and truth will be with you. And Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, surely in whatever place my lord the king shall be whether in death or life, even there also your servant will be. So David said to Ittai, go and cross over. Then Ittai the Gittite and all his men and all the little ones who were with him crossed over. And all the country wept with a loud voice and all the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over the brook Hidron and all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. Now, this wasn't a camping trip. This was something that had to be done in haste. This was out in the wilderness. It's not like today where you have you know, canned food and you can go and be gone for a few weeks. When you were in exile and out in the wilderness, out in the, you know, not in the city area, you had to fend for yourself. Uh, and and it, it was difficult. So here goes David again on the run. Maybe he thought, gee, I thought this ended when I was young. Now I have to do this all over again. But what David has, though, is he does have some loyal to him to the end. And if you've been through trials, they go down a lot better when there's a few that are loyal to you. Now, not for loyalty's sake and not loyal to our sin, but hopefully loyal to our good character. And that's, that's what you have there, verse 24. There was Zadok also and all the Levites with him, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God, and Abiathar went up until all the people had finished crossing over from the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, 
he will bring me back and show me both it and his habitation. But if he says thus, I have no delight in you, here I am. Let him do to me as it seems good. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace and your two sons with you, Ahimaaz your son and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait in the plains of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Therefore, Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained here. Remember, David doesn't know how far he's got to go. He doesn't know if it's going to blow over. He's really in a position where he's, he's just not sure of anything at this point. But he even sends the priests and the ark of God back to Jerusalem. All David wants at this point is God's will. You've got to give him credit for that. Even if it meant him being dethroned. Whatever the Lord says, I'm going to be okay with are we like that? Or do we just like whatever the Lord says, as long as it's according to our prayers and our goals, we're okay with? The expression, God is good all the time, no matter what happens in our life. What kind of relationship do we have with him if we only love him in the good times? Actually, I cling closer to him in the bad times. You know, you hold on for dear life. But David was willing to lose troops. He was willing to lose the ark of God to do the right thing, while Absalom, on the other hand, was getting as many allies to support him as he could, as many traitors as he could. It brings us to our seventh mark of a false leader. They try to hold on to power no matter what destruction is in their wake. They have this need, this maybe a sick need to be relevant, and they'll do anything they can to hold on to that power. You know, look at some of these countries that we've seen, you know, back and forth with power struggles and, you know, one tyrant leaves and another tyrant gets in and, and nobody learns from the other guy's mistakes. I, I also think of, I just couldn't help it, came to my mind, mayoral candidate Anthony Weiner. This guy, man, just go somewhere, go away. But you know what? A lot of New Yorkers are still going to vote for him. How many times does he have to do these bizarre things and, and he can actually put his face out there and, and act as he's a legitimate candidate. But he just, I, I believe some of these people in politics, they just want the power. There's a few of them actually that are coming back um, from adultery, scandals and stuff, and they put themselves back in the race. Not even repentant. They just, you know, because they want the power. True leader, though, is willing to give up the position if keeping it is detrimental to those that they're serving. Man, that takes a lot of courage and a lot of fortitude. A lot of fortitude. My pastor said to me, if there's something going wrong in leadership and you have to take the title or remove somebody, even for a time from a position, he says you can learn a whole lot about that person and how they respond to it. Are they going to be immature about it? Is it all about the title? Or is it about the Lord's will and, and the good of the church, the greater good? So that's what's going on there. In verse 30, so David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up, and he had his head covered and went barefoot, and all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they went up. Then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom, and David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. So David's heartbroken. You know, it's just not easy. Put yourself in his shoes, especially being used to the palace for so long, and now he's, he's a fugitive again. You know, 
Sometimes it's worse when there's such a great dichotomy, such a great contrast of one lifestyle to the other. So this is really difficult for David in a lot of ways. To make matters worse, his own counselor, Ahithophel, he jumps on board with Absalom. He's a traitor. So his heart is broken, and, and there's insult added to injury. Lord, turn his counsel into foolishness. And you know what? If somebody is doing things for the wrong reason, as in Ahithophel's sake, we do see that his counsel does turn to foolishness. And when a leader is just about self-promotion, they will, you know, God's not going to be in it. I want to focus on David's actions for a moment. He's weeping and mourning. I submit to you that David was not a coward. He wasn't weak. He was a warrior. David could, could hold his own. He took down Goliath. He had the faith of God. But he's in a really broken portion of his life. His heart was completely sick. You know, I mean, just constant problem after problem was mounting up. You know, even strong men, even leaders have downtimes. I said that before. And when a, when a man comes to me privately and he cries, I don't think any less of him. The strongest of us have our weak moments. And if we're strong and we're smart, we realize that we're not always going to be in control or have the right answers. We've got to give things up to the Lord. And if you ever had a good cry, it's cathartic. It relieves tension. Actually, you just sob and afterwards like, oh, that felt so good. You ever, you ever do that, right? <laughs> so I don't know how he was doing it, but um, I'm sure it felt good afterwards, at least for the time being. Verse 32. Now it happened when David, I did that good, didn't I? I could do really good baby noises too, but I'll save that for later. <laughs> 32. Now it happened when David had come to the top of the mountain where he worshipped God that there was Hushai the archite coming to meet him with his robe torn and dust on his head. David said to him, if you go on with me, then you will become a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, just as I have been your father's servant previously, so I will now also be your servant. Then you may defeat the counsel of Ahithophel for me. And do you not have Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, with you there? Therefore we will be that whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall tell to Zadok and Abiathar, the priest. Indeed, they have there with them their two sons, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, went into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. That's where we're going to end for tonight. But David's in, in a pickle here. You know, he, he, he seems to me to be really trusting the Lord. But at the same time, he sends some guys ahead and, you know, let me know what's going on over there. But I think we really need to cut David some slack because we know, even as believers, and sometimes we have to rebuke ourselves or a friend has to rebuke us, where we say, oh, I trust the Lord, but our actions don't show that we're trusting the Lord. And sometimes it's a combination. We mostly trust the Lord, but we help him out a little bit, you know, with that small 5% portion. However, I think there's also legitimately times where we wonder how much does God want us to just sit back and wait, and how much does he want us to do and be diligent. And I think the, over the life of the believer, as we, get, we grow in the Lord, we start to learn that balance a little bit more. Oh, uh, maybe I should wait. Oh, God, God wants me to act. And then in hindsight, we realize, you know what, I did, did hear from the Lord because it, it, it really uh, 
went down according to God's will. It, was a, it, was, it gave him glory. So I'll give you a little, uh, a little uh, saying from Oliver Cromwell, the, the British uh, uh, military man, to kind of make the, the combination of the both. He would say to the, his guys in the infantry, he would say, boys, trust God, but keep your powder dry. Back in the day, if your gunpowder got wet, it was useless. So trust God, but just make sure that your gunpowder is ready to go when, you know, when we go into battle. So kind of the two there. This is a story of a coup. However, it does have greater application for our lives, believe it or not, thousands of years later. And everything we see a leader do in the scripture, we always compare it to Jesus. Jesus had this love. He had this servant style of leadership. And even when he was disciplining and rebuking people, he did it with love. You know, he was the son of God. He is the son of God. So the story is of a contrast between true and false leadership. David's being true and Absalom's being false and the wise to it. So first we look at the Absalom spirit, ambitious. Now we look at his ambition as a good thing, but ambition can be a bad thing, selfish ambition. I just want what I want, and I'm going to do anything to get it. Only cared about his own elevation, didn't care about the greater good or how it affected those around him. You know, if you want to be a leader and you really care about the, the people, you want to be a good leader. And you actually don't want to step into that position until you're, you think you're at the point where you can effectively lead because otherwise you don't care about your subordinates. Think about that. As a good leader, we always want to be concerned that we're leading effectively and righteously. It's also about the Absalom spirit is prideful, it's parasitic, it's in, entitled. It feels it's owed something. It's becoming more common and unfortunately, in the church aggregately, it, sometimes it gets in and affects the church negatively. Instead of going through the biblical steps of leadership to be tested, to serve, to sacrifice. Those of us in, in the pastorate, we, we watch our kids grow up quickly. You know, we're busy doing many things. We're serving the Lord. And we don't get the free time that the average person gets. We're, you know, we're to seek God's will. We're to work hard. We're to want to serve others instead of being pampered and served by everybody else. Remember the Jesus style. Word and prayer-based events take precedence over social events and church events. But some, for some, it's easier to parasite off of a successful church. I actually humorously remember an application that came in, and this guy was new to the church, and none of you know him. And he wrote, How, what do you want to serve? Now, he's new to the church, didn't really serve anywhere, but he said, you know, I'm a teacher, so whenever you go on vacation, just give me a call and I'll fill in for you on Sunday. I've seen a lot, man. I've seen some weird, bizarre things. If the Absalom spirit, when we see it in the scripture, and if we see it in our own lives and in the church, often causes church splits, factions. People want to be self-imposed leaders. Now, I have a saying to some who want to come in and try to cause destruction or division. I say, I'll give you a case of Bibles, I'll throw you a hundred bucks. There's uh, plenty of rental property in Jamesburg, set up shop. You pay for everything. You do all the teaching. You set up, break down, put the long hours in. And usually people are like, no, 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 no. I was just saying, you know. But hey, it, it's always open to do that. Unfortunately, some don't want to take 
the right way. They want to take the easy way in the world and in the church. And there will always be those type of leaders. And sadly, they will always have followers. Something about people, they can be abused and take so much abuse and be flattered and they still continue to follow these type of people. It's the Diapsaloms of the world. Warren Wearsby said it best, David was a hero, Absalom was a celebrity. So now let's make the contrast with Absalom, or excuse me, David. David was humble. He could take correction. He waited his turn. He cared for the people. He wasn't afraid to work. He was a servant. He was a man of prayer. He was a sinner, like us. But most important, in his heart of hearts, he wanted to please God and do what was right. And I don't know about you, but that's the type of leader I want to be. And hopefully, as we study this this evening, you know, I do have a little, it's kind of a side ministry, and it doesn't get overwhelming because I only get phone calls once in a while. It's very rare. But we've been through a lot in, in Calvary Chapel Crossfields over the years. And, uh, you know, God's really brought us through and helped us to shine in the community. And I actually help. And they're not all Calvary pastors. Pastors from other churches. I just talked to a pastor a few months ago about a, a new church that he started up and the difficulties he was going through. So it's like a little, it's enjoyable. It's a side ministry. And I counsel guys and I help them when they have these destructive things, when they have these types of people and how to handle them. It's not an easy thing to do. But my prayer is that as we look at the difference between Absalom and David, that we really understand the two and we decide and make the conscious decision that we want to be more like David than we do Absalom because he was like Jesus. David was. Let's pray.